0: I like he starts naming like examples of everyday people he's like you know butcher a banker sure and a, a drummer it's like yeah. on, <laughs> <laughs> there are people too yeah <laughs> i guess i got no not the butt of every joke i guess
1: well he's just talking about a bunch of non-musicians you know a butcher a banker a drummer <laughs>
2: yeah right exactly <laughs>
3: Welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where musicians and friends get together to break down a classic album from the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We'll give you a little context on the artist, on the band, we'll share some interesting stories, some really interesting stories I think in this one, that went into making this album and, and making this band's career. We'll do a little bit of complaining of course, and at the end we'll vote on whether or not you must listen to this album before you die. I'm Alan, I've been playing music for about 20 years and have been complaining about music for much longer than that. This week, I'm excited to discuss an album from a band in which the band leader at one point was so paranoid that he thought the bass player had hired a hitman to kill him. That, of course, is a man by the name of Sly Stone of Sly and the Family Stone, and we're here to talk about their fourth studio album, which is called Stand.
1: Alan, I don't know if you delivered the title with enough enthusiasm. There is an exclamation point at the end of that. It is STAND! Mm -hmm. It is not just STAND.
2: STAND!
4: (laughs) I feel like punctuation and album titles and band names and song titles never ages well.
1: Yeah, no. Well, except for Wham. Wham killed it.
3: (laughs) Let's give you a little taste of the title track of this album, the opening track, to give you a sense for what we've been listening to for the last week.
2: It'll be you one that's done all the things you set out to do Stand, there's a cross for you to bear Things to go through if you are going anywhere stand for the things you know alright It's the truth that the truth So I like stand All the things you want are real
3: So, let's introduce our key players tonight. We'll go around the horn and give a quick tweet-length introduction of Stand by Sly and the Family Stone. Let's start with you, Marty.
0: Hey, how's it going? I, you know, I kept, I kept saying when I was practicing reading my, my tweet-length review, Sly Stallone. So, hopefully that, doesn't, uh, <laughs> hopefully that doesn't happen much this time. But my, my uh, tweet-length review is this... Uh, Listening to this album, Stand, by Sly and the Family Stone, has led me to ask the question, are drugs really that bad? (laughs) All righty. I like it. (laughs) But just to ask the question? (laughs) Yeah. Everyone says they're bad,
3: but are they?
1: Well, how long was their career? We're going to get into it, but...
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Let's turn it over to Rob. Hey, everybody. This is Rob. My tweet-length review of this sly and the family stone album is ever wondered what it would sound like if the black panthers took over sesame street look no further (laughs) damn (laughs) that's on on point (laughs) yeah i'm digging
3: it let's go to tom what do you got for us well you know
1: i didn't write a tweet length review this week and so i'm just going to take a page out of sly stone's book and say this album is pretty good and so on and so on and scooby dooby dooby
3: (laughs) wait there's no way sly stone has a book (laughs) (laughs) i'm guessing that's a joke but uh that is yes It makes me realize I might have missed a a crucial piece of research uh, no, no, this album. (laughs) All right. And I'm Alan here, and my tweet-length review is, a classic funk and R&B record that's almost as close to Zappa and Hendrix as it is to James Brown and the Meters? I wouldn't have thought so either. But very much like the man himself, nothing about Sly Stone's music was as you would expect. So I'd love to get into to some impressions here because I, I don't know about you guys, but I've always been aware of this band. I have a bit of an inclination for, you know, funk style music. It's something that kind of resonates with me to an extent. But in going back to this, this was different than I was expecting, or at least what my impression of this band was. I'd love to just throw it out there and get some initial reactions, sort of what What jumped out to you in listening to this album?
1: Number one thing that jumped out to me was the time frame. I would have thought 74 that they were recording this album, not 68, 69 that they were recording this album. Very ahead of its time. And honestly, a third of the bands in the 70s were trying to do this sound almost exactly for most of the the decade. And to define an era like that... And to come way before that era and define it. I mean, there's a lot happening in music between 68 and like 73, 74. But you get to 73, 74, and all these bands are trying to sound like these guys. And it's kind of crazy.
4: I totally ripped the words right from my brain, Tom. I think the year it came out was the most surprising thing for me. And it's one of the most important pieces of context. Because it clearly has some tentacles in the 1960s i think that's some of the dorkier stuff the stuff that made me cringe a little more and maybe that i referred to as being sesame street but it's way more 70s and forward thinking than it ought to be given when it was released
1: yeah absolutely the the beatles were still putting shit out when this album came out you would not think oh the beatles are still a thing the beatles are still making music when this album came out listening to the sound
0: Totally. the 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 thing that stuck out to me about this album is just how how kind of welcoming it is to its audience. Uh, It's very like celebratory. There's like a message of peace and inclusiveness and love, and it kind of I'd feel very comfortable and welcome to you know drive around with my windows down listening to this album. And I think that's kind of what it's intended to do is just be welcoming.
1: Well. That's before the PCP use, though. I'm pretty sure this is a pre-PCP album.
3: Yeah. Well, funny enough, it was almost like a precipitous sort of slide right into that drug use era. I think it was like very shortly after this that this band is famous for a few things. One, I think, is this pioneering sense of of funk rock. Uh, But the other is Sly Stone himself, which we'll get into. It, It was very shortly after this that... He really started to to go downhill. Something I wanted to sort of circle back to, this idea of being ahead of their time. What's even crazier is if you follow the trail to some of their albums after this, they even started to lap some of those bands that were doing 70s funk, even around like 72, right? When they came out with this album Fresh, which has that song, If You Want Me To Stay On It, which is like one of my favorite bass lines of all time they were already doing like really deep rhythmic funk. They were getting away from this sort of like celebratory stuff. And this was even before, sort of right around to, like when bands like Tower of Power were coming out. And so like they they were super adventurous, super ahead of their time. But going back to this album, yeah, you're right. It was very much like they were an encapsulation of this era at this time. Sixty nine. This this was released in May of sixty nine. It was our fourth studio album. You know, I don't know that we need to set like a ton of context. I know we've talked about this year a lot with with a few of these bands, and it's you know Woodstock, the death of MLK, civil rights, or that whole nine. But they were very much like a hippie band. You know, they sang about love and hope and, and unity. And I think what also made them unique at this time were that they were the first huge band that was. Racially integrated, and that also featured men and women, and I think that really influenced the sound as well, so that that you had these different uh, sort of influences you know coming coming together in the band. You know they actually played Woodstock, which I don't know that I was aware of. I think they played at like three a m and a lot of people considered their performance, especially the song higher, which we'll talk about, as like almost like a high watermark of of that era of music, so yeah, definitely a lot of context riding on on this one.
1: That was back in the day when just even saying the word high or higher in a song was dangerous. Like, ooh, it's like coded messaging. We're talking about drugs. But these were still the happy drugs, not the the PCP drugs. But I honestly, if you had said, hey, name random bands that played at Woodstock. You got, I got santana i got you know crosby stills nash and young got the grateful dead got Jimi hendrix but i would never have guessed sly and the family stone again it just it blew my mind that they were this early we're talking about abbey road came out the same year that this album came out and they could not sound more different and as much as i love abbey road abbey road was the culmination of a musical lineage and this is the birth of musical lineage. One would say an amalgam of a lot of different musical lineages with soul and gospel and rock and roll and blues and all that stuff put together, but it really does sound like something new.
4: Another band that it invoked that we've talked about on this show, and even when you just mentioned they were one of the early racially integrated bands, was Love. I thought a lot of this record reminded me of the Forever Changes album partially in a bad way, and that it was a, took a kitchen sink approach to a lot of the arrangements and productions, which I don't think has aged that well. But in a positive way, I thought they were a much stronger band rhythmically and otherwise, maybe in a, from a songwriting standpoint, than Love.
3: They came to mind for me as well. I think they were trying to tell, they're trying to deliver a message of sorts you know, during this time. But I, I also agree. I think they executed much better. I mean, these guys were heavy hitter musicians and I think like looking at the band themselves, sort of any discussion of this band I think starts and ends with with Sylvester Stewart, aka not Sylvester Stallone, but Sylvester Stewart, aka Sly Stone, who was the the band leader, songwriter, like he was the guy. So he did enlist a bunch of all-star musicians, most of whom were were part of the family, hence hence the name uh, Family Stone. He really was a prodigy musician so he he was born in Texas but he spent most of his upbringing in the San Francisco Bay area he grew up singing in his church band and so he really honed like his musical chops in the church growing up i think he was part of like Cutting a gospel single when he was like four or something with his family, I think by the age of eleven he was already pretty proficient in in keys, guitar, bass, and drums, so just one of these like uber you know talented guys who possibly had this like idiot savant thing happening where he was so over indexed on musicality that maybe there were other areas of judgment sort of lacking
1: well, it's funny that you mentioned like you talk about this i it occurred to me just earlier today, that he was the blueprint for Prince later on. The, I can play every instrument, and often does play a lot of different instruments on songs, that maybe they should have gotten somebody better to play that instrument, but it's all about him, it's all about this outsized personality and a real vision. Now, maybe he needed an editor at times, maybe he needed somebody to come in and say, no, we're not going to do that, we're going to change this up, change this up here, but he seemed like one of those people who got good at a bunch of stuff and then said, This is my thing. I'm going to be the captain of this ship. And everybody else is just my my crewmates, basically.
3: I think to an extent that was true. I think the prince comparison is very apt. And I think even some of the music has some some connection. In hearing some of the bandmates talk about it, e- even though they hated each other's guts, you know, Larry Graham, the bass player, and Slystone, you know, Larry does talk about how it was his show. He had songwriting credits basically on, on everything but he did welcome the contributions of his crew. Like he, I don't think it, this, it was a uh, John Fogarty, you know, type of situation where he was like <laughs> fucking play this, play this note, play it like this. But yeah, it was definitely his show and it, it lived and died on his, on his whims. Essentially.
4: Speaking of credence, I just happened, I, I went and looked for it cause I knew I had it somewhere. I'd seen it recently. I have a list of performers fees from Woodstock do you guys want to guess how much Sly and the Family Stone made for this appearance? I'm gonna guess like ten grand, twenty five hundred dollars, five hundred. They're actually at the high end of the list uh, of all these bands. They made seventy five hundred dollars. Oh, that's good, and one. that's like the that's in like the number eight slot of, of everybody. I know some of those bands, like like
0: Mountain, was a, was a band that apparently had like a legendary uh, performance at Woodstock, and and there's no evidence of it ever happening because they refused to sign a a consent form to allow them to be recorded and videoed. And I'm not sure if that's what happened with them, but...
4: Well, that is what happened with Credence. I think Alan covered it when he hosted the Credence episode. But I, I wanted to draw your attention to Santana's performance fee. Who I think we all consider to be have and had an iconic performance oh, yeah. at Woodstock and he's in the movie, he got paid seven hundred and fifty dollars. I'm sorry, not him, the band. Oh, wow. Aren't there like twenty
1: people in that band? Yeah, plus, <laughs> right. plus a sheet of acid, I'm sure, plus at yeah, least one sheet of acid.
3: That reminds me of like playing a bar gig where you owe more on the way out the door <laughs> right. than you got paid.
2: Yeah,
3: Oh yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. You're like, I got a thirty dollar bar tap, but I only got paid like fifteen bucks. Yeah, right. I Speaking of big band, you know, this, this was a pretty big band. It was sort of that quintessential, like, big, bombastic funk band. So you had Sly Stone on basically everything. He didn't play every instrument on every recording. You know, he played vocals, organ, guitar, harmonica, lots of vocoder, among other things, as we'll probably talk about.
4: <laughs> I mean, that said, to support your point, Alan, he shares the vocal duties quite a bit, meaning there's a lot of vocal interplay. I think of that as one of the style hallmarks of of their band. Totally.
0: There's not a lot of ego. You know, he's not like the front, you can't tell that he's the front man. Everyone's kind of, everyone seems to be just like doing whatever they want during any given song, (laughs) all all at the same time, which is kind of cool. It makes it sound like church or like, you know, a party.
1: Yeah, I mean, these guys have like basically as many members as Bell and Sebastian does on this album. Right. I make the I make that note to talk about the contrast in sound because, like, there there could not be more sound going on on this album. Oh, yeah. Everybody oh, yeah. is doing shit all the time. It is at times assaulting.
3: Oh yeah, that's why I kind of made that Zappa comparison early on. Is is not because of the they're obviously not proggy and super weird the way zappa is but it's jarring in a lot of cases it's chaotic it's sort of not what you expect and it's it's very it's a lot more psychedelic than i expected i also didn't realize that they came from the bay area initially and and i mean they were right there with like jefferson airplane grateful dead sly stone actually as he was sort of coming up before he started this band i think he did a little bit of producing and he produced Something uh, from the Warlocks, like right before they ca- became the Grateful Dead, so he was very much of that of that style, and he was very much like kind of fusing a lot of this this stuff together.
4: Well, then I saw as a diehard Norcal for life denizen, and then I saw that all uh, everything went downhill as soon as he decided to move down to L.A. Of
3: course, oh, clearly, absolutely, <laughs> but that's when the fun started. So, you know. <laughs> Fun didn't last that long. Did not last that long. I don't know, man. He's like 80 years old plus right now. So, I think
4: he's got the Keith Richards thing going on. Yeah, but he's like a famous recluse. He was living he's in barely a barely made public appearances.
1: There was a period of time where they said he was in, in the 2010s, he was living in a van at, in Crenshaw, uh, which is where, you know, Boys in the Hood was... Took place, and there was just an older retired couple that was bringing him one meal a day to ensure that he ate. But he was literally just living in a van.
4: He's a survivor. Did you guys see? Because I watched a video of the 2006 Grammys where there was a bunch of people on stage running through a medley of Sly and the Family Stone songs as like a celebration of their entire career. And he sort of hobbles out for one tune. He's got a huge he the blonde mohawk. mohawk. <laughs> And this gold lame trench coat. And he looks like he's in the fifth element or something. <laughs> and then he kind of half sings for like 45 seconds. And he leaves. They're in the, a medley. He leaves before that section of the medley is even over <laughs> that covers that song. He, he's a weird dude, man. There's a lot of stories about
3: that. Like the van story or the RV. It's, there. Some people suggest that he actually likes that. Like that he's just so kind of offbeat that that's how he wants to live is like super reclusive i don't know what his like financial state is or if he's still i can't imagine he's still doing hard drugs but i know he had a lot of mismanagement of his money i think while he was really fucked up he was sort of conned into signing away the rights to his album he at one point hired like to use one of tom's races some jackbooted thugs to break into a record studio and like try to steal back his master tapes so yeah uh, kind of a string of like really. Poor decisions, drug-induced, but I don't think that he was really all there to begin with,
4: to be, to be honest. Well, there's a couple poor decisions on this record that I think we're going to get into. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
3: there's a few. <laughs> so, I think we, we've gotten into some of the context and, and some, some general impressions, but what do you guys think in terms of, like, did you like the music? You know, what are your sort of general, like, vibe of the album a, as a whole?
4: I think my take is when they avoided some of the ridiculous excess, the go-nowhere jams, They're in one or two spots on this record. In the, You know, the music is pretty vital. It feels ahead of its time. Lyrics are dorkier than I was expecting. Like, I guess on balance, I enjoyed it. It's not exactly for me, but it's got a lot of cool textures and aspects to it, so I appreciated it.
1: Yeah, I think that this band's secret weapon is definitely the rhythm section. They have a driving rhythm that really carries some of these songs that otherwise would be pretty kind of ho-hum. I mean, most of these songs are just, even the hits are just a chord with maybe a change, maybe a little run or something like that. And a bunch of people singing, but a really driving rhythm behind it that gives it that danceability and vibrancy that I think is what sets it apart from a lot of the other music that was going on at the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, Tom. Like I said earlier, everyone's just kind of screaming and talking and singing all the same time. And that, the, the straightforward drums, bass, and guitar kind of reign everything in.
1: Yeah. And straightforward bass from a man who is just a goddamn monster. And we haven't really talked about him too much, but Larry Graham is an absolute beast on the bass. And, but he's got that taste where he's not just constantly riffing a ton of notes. I think we'll talk about it. I think on everyday people, he just plays a G note the entire time he's don't, 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 don't. He doesn't change it the entire time. That's the perfect thing to do for that song. But it gives it this <laughs> nice, like, kind of motion to it. And he didn't have that ego about, oh, I need to be stepping out in front with this new technique that I invented called slap bass. I mean, come on. <laughs>
4: let's stay on him for a second because I didn't realize I was familiar with the Graham Central Station oh yeah yeah records they're pretty hot but I hadn't connected him to this band so that was kind of new information for me even when Marty was calling this record welcoming I was thinking of the opening track on the Graham Central Station the acapella theme song for Graham Central Station where they're talking about welcoming you to like their band it's it's very lovely
1: well the other thing is that I did Not realize until this week that Larry Graham is the I'm going to add some bottom guy, like yeah, he, totally. he gets on the mic a lot too. He's a, he really contributes with that nice baritone sound.
3: So he's the guy yeah, in the gonna... chili's commercial that goes barbecue sauce.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps the last note on his biography, but I saw on Wikipedia that he is in fact Drake's uncle.
3: Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean,
1: what, what's his name? Audrey or Aubrey or something like that whatever drake's real name is
3: no wonder he goes by drake yeah all right let's get back to the title track called
2: stand
4: It's kind of a dorky song until two nineteen. Oh yeah,
0: I have two. I have two se- seventeen, <laughs> but maybe my uh, Spotify's a little bit. But yes. yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: that that should have been the song.
3: That break is incredible. Yeah, like I yeah. felt like I was. I happened to be driving in my car when I first spun this, and I was like, I felt like I was like Lebowski when he gets his car back and he's like banging his hand on the <laughs> on the ceiling, listening to <laughs> Credence. Like when that part came on, that was fucking dope. Again,
1: I feel like. So many bands heard that and were like, oh, that's the new sound. That's the sound that we got to try to go for. It's so awesome. And it really is. I mean, it saves the song. Otherwise, the song is not that good. The melodies is not that great. I don't think the melody is all that great at the beginning. No. It's, it's not agree. super compelling. That end, though, is like, oh, yeah, all of a sudden it's a porno or like a chase scene in a 70s, like bullet or something like
4: that. I felt like the decades changed. Throughout the song. I felt like that first part is so mired in the 60s and some of the the cool experimentation and arrangements, but also more dorky, just older style. And then it, it transitions.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like Age of Aquarius or like Simon and Garfunkel in the beginning.
4: And then it yeah, really, really picks up. Can I tell you something silly they do in the production in the first half that I noticed? Which is the chorus kicks in and they start clapping on every single beat. And the reason that people don't do that is because it actually sounds like applause. It's not achieving your goal. (laughs) Well, it sounded
1: it sounded spontaneous because it's not doubled. And almost every time you're putting claps on something, you're doubling those claps so they actually get like a nice full sound to them. But this just sounded like maybe one of the eight people or whatever twelve people of Miku, the backup singers, was just all of a sudden started (laughs) like yeah, and they're like ah, I like I like
4: i'm liking marty's theory that maybe the practice band the rehearsal band was like five strong and then they get in there with six extra people and they're like what do we do during this track i don't know. do
3: whatever you want that's only so many tambourines to go around (laughs) what do we do in this
1: what do we do during this track how about cocaine and then just figure it out
3: (laughs) well what i found interesting about the song by the way i actually like the rest of the song but i i'm not gonna die on that hill I, i get the the criticism um but i think it's really a great opening track in general but that that second piece, like the Coda or whatever you want to call it, that actually was mostly session musicians on that part because Sly didn't think that it was a good enough song, and I think in his mind, like he literally was just like, "We need this to be funky," and so he just brought in some session musicians to crush like forty-five seconds of really. <laughs> the outro That's not of the Larry Graham. Yeah. no,
1: really. Cause he's no. like, a, he's, a, he's a, he's a session guy too, right? Like he had session work before then and after then too.
3: It's possible they weren't available either or, 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 something, but he was so insistent that it had to be different.
4: Maybe it was added at the last minute or, you know, recorded later and after you heard the first part and weren't satisfied, right?
1: He's an eccentric dude. And also another thing to, that blew my mind a little bit is that this is their fourth album. And that they had three albums that really didn't go anywhere. They got they were sort of critical darlings, but they didn't have a breakthrough. And I got to imagine the pressure was on. We don't talk about that a lot on this show, but when you are really trying to make it and you've already had three strikes and you're going on to number four, you really do feel like you need to show out and show up and really make something new happen and so i can understand that pressure
4: coming in being like
1: i just got to get a whole bunch of studio musicians in here to rock out a weird part because ah, it's not fucking working it's gonna be our title i don't know what we're gonna do
4: i think it's the combination of the artistic pressure and the financial pressure of the record company is going to stop believing in us any old minute we've tried our hardest we're not going to make it if we don't make it now combined with i know what we talked about on a recent episode i can't quite remember which one I don't want to do this anymore if we're not going to be significantly more successful. So it might be my last chance on a number of levels to to get it right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And
3: in fact, I think it might have been the album right before this. They had their first, I don't know that it would be considered like a hit necessarily, but it was um, a song called Dance to the Music that I think was written specifically to kind of like pacify the the record execs who were who were getting nervous about it because they signed like pretty quickly after they formed and so i think there was a sense that like they had something there was some kind of like special sauce going on with the band but you're right they they kind of like muddled around for a while until they found you know until they kind of came around this which was actually by far their biggest like commercial hit up to that point which leads us to a good segment called By the Numbers. So I'll, I'll throw out the number two, which is the number of years that this spent on the uh, Billboard Top Albums chart. This was uh, definitely like a commercial success for them. Before we move on from two, I just want to, again,
1: for the audience, refamiliarize familiarize yourself with the context that it spent two years on the Top Albums charts in 69 and 70, right? Like that is an insane period of time for music and it's still... Was selling with all of this other crazy competition. It was still selling that well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was different. You know, it was, there wasn't a lot or really anything like this. I know there was some funk that was starting to emerge, but even that, you're kind of going like James Brown, the meters, starting to get into like parliament a little bit. So, yeah, so it ultimately sold 3 million and counting. Most of that probably went up Sly's nose right. <laughs> at various points in, in, in their career. So speaking to sort of their collective influence or impact on on music, the number 43, this is where Rolling Stone ranks them in terms of the greatest artist of all time. In my head, I couldn't figure out if this was too high or too low. I think I settled on like this was pretty high for a band like this, but they're generally regarded as like being the forerunners of of this style of music.
0: Well, they release one of those lists every year, you know, and it always changes, right? So it's like...
1: You're saying it's fucking clickbait, <laughs> getting all those <laughs>
0: diehard Sly, Sly and the
1: Family Stone fans <laughs> to click on your article?
4: Well... No, but I think they also have a vested interest. Of course, they have to remake those lists and shake things up. But they have a vested interest too, or an interest in repping artists that you know are somewhat lost to time. Let me put it that way. Because it sounds like we're all agreeing that if you were around and buying these records when they came out, you were really excited by it. It was new. It was groundbreaking. And they were obviously a successful band in a lot of ways. But I don't feel like they get as much due as a lot of the other groups you just mentioned for being these forefathers.
3: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think a lot of that has to do with where the career went in like the early to mid-70s. They really faded into total oblivion. I think I mentioned earlier, it wasn't too long after this that, that Sly moved the band to LA and that really like accelerated the downfall. Just, I mean, insane drug use. Lots of I, I think even more than the drug use, what really brought the band down was the fact that they weren't showing up for gigs in the early to mid seventies. Like when you say they, you mean Sly Stone, right? Mostly. Mostly, yeah. But there were <laughs> there were periods where it was hard to get some of the other people to show up on time. But yeah, Sly was, was really the the main sort of failure point.
4: Yeah, it just sounded like I heard stories about the bass player would like drive to the studio and just wait all day for Sly to show up. And he just, wasn't, he just wouldn't show up that day. And and even later, after he faded into obscurity and was kind of a famous recluse for a long time, sort of Brian Wilson style, and then started slowly to make public appearances again, you know, Vegas oddsmakers had him at 30% chance of actually showing up at the proposed gig.
1: I want to point out, this is my favorite piece of trivia that I found out about this about Sly Stone post Sly and the Family Stone is that he was still trying to get some work in the 80s. Because by 75, they were done as a band. So he put out some more stuff under that name, but he also was just trying to do some stuff in the 80s. And he wrote a song for the soundtrack of the movie Soul Man, which I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Soul Man. It came out in the 80s. It, is, it stars C. Thomas Howell as... A guy who dresses in blackface so that he can get into Harvard Law School. That's right, Ponyboy from The Untouchables. Dresses in blackface so that he can get into Harvard Law, and apparently Sly Stone was like, "Yeah, no, I'll write a song for that soundtrack." That sounds about right. Yeah.
3: Wow. <laughs> yeah. Hey, gotta feed the monkey. <laughs>
2: apparently so.
3: Apparently so. That's ridiculous. I need to see that maybe now, or maybe I don't. I don't know. <laughs>
4: I have, I have sadly seen it. Luckily, C. Thomas Howell hasn't worked in decades, or else he would be immediately canceled. <laughs> I,
3: I did find it hilarious, though, that we did a lot of shit-talking on Axl Rose and, and Guns N' Roses for their, like, inability to show up for shows on time and, and being belligerent. But, I mean, they show up, though. Like, eventually. The Sly Stone just wasn't <laughs> showing up at all. Which leads me to my next set of, of numbers, one of which is the number 26 that's how many gigs out of 80 scheduled gigs in 1970 that he f- just failed to show up at which is wow crazy that's like more than a, th- a third of of the
4: gigs yeah, you can't have a band that works that no, way for sure yeah no.
1: i mean that's like oh no i'm not even in chicago we're playing in chicago but i never left la <laughs> like no i'm just not gonna be there that's that type of shit that is ridiculous
3: well, and the Chicago thing's interesting, too, because that was a famous city where because he didn't show up and they were expecting him to there ended up being like a riot where like people were injured and, and cops were were roughed up. And, and it was like a whole big thing, which leads me to my final number, which is the number 750. So this is the number of people in 1975 who attended a Sly and the Family Stone concert at Radio City Music Hall. 750 because they were so certain that he wasn't going to show up. They did show up, though, and played to, like, a basically empty building. They made so little money from that show that the band members literally had to scrounge m- their own money to get themselves back to L.A. after the show. <laughs> and, and basically, that was, like, the end of the, of the band, like, in its form at that time. Jeez. Yeah, I
1: quit that band. I quit that band if that happens. If I show up, if, like, finally he shows up, but there's nobody there, and then I have to pay out of pocket to get myself home, I'm not going to the next gig fuck that
4: I mean what about the experience of showing up for the gig and the lead singer and namesake of the band just doesn't show up and you got to go on anyway oh yeah you gotta have a replacement at that point at least you get paid for that you know yeah I just feel like after two of those that's gonna be that's gonna be enough for me yeah hey we'll be back to this show in a second but this is a call to action to you yes you we want you to share this podcast with a like-minded friend or to share this episode with an appropriate fan community this is the best way to help us grow our show and continue delivering these deep dives to you every single week and just so you know we love feedback of all kinds so if you're a super fan of this band or no one be sure to share this with them so we can all learn more about our favorite thing in the world Music, yeah. Well,
3: but if you're freddie Stone and <laughs> <for> <laughs> Rose Stone, I no offense to them, but like I don't know how much else they really had kind of going on at the time. So, hey, didn't Freddy Stone
1: in. retire and become a pastor after all this was done? I'm pretty sure he runs a church in Vallejo like to this day. Oh, you went deep,
3: <laughs> <laughs> the, the freddie Stone uh spinoff, <laughs>
1: probably more money in that than there wasn't being in Sly and the Family
3: Stone. That's possible. All right, let's move on to the next track on our focus list today, which is called I Want to Take You Higher.
4: claps for rob <laughs> <laughs> i was i, I wrote <laughs> it is my favorite song on the record but i wrote third time recording the song and you finally nailed it <laughs> oh that's true yeah yeah they did sort of reimagine this a
3: few times what stood out to me is is this actually the origin of boom shakalaka from nba jam <laughs> oh <laughs> i don't know i thought that was that was pretty funny this song's great what I love about this song, honestly, is I think obviously we spend a lot of time just talking about music and thinking about it and what does it mean, and all this other shit. This song is just about music and how music makes you feel, and I think that's that's kind of cool.
1: I like this song. I definitely dig this song, and at least half the reason why I dig that song is because the bass tone on this song is just it's just fucking special I, I they're just overdriving the shit out of an amp, and they have a microphone too close to the speaker that can barely handle the signal it's getting it's that nice kind of natural distortion on it it is fantastic there have been a million bass pedals created to try to replicate this sound but you can't really get the true version of the sound without almost breaking your speaker by just putting too much signal through it but it really sounds great i wish they didn't hard pan it left but you know What do you got?
4: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about the mixing for a second. Yeah. I think it suffers a little from 60s mixing because there's so much going on. And another thing is, it's both their trademark and a cool trick, which is the multiple voices, multiple singers, right? Bouncing around your ears. But it does provide a real mixing challenge. It's very easy to get disoriented and not know where to balance those. So. The mix gets a little muddy for me. I could see how this would be the greatest freaking song to hear live, for sure. Big gospel energy, right? But the mix itself just bums me out a little bit. I need a remix. This
3: was one of the singles from the record, and I think the single release was maybe like two minutes shorter than this. This one, I think, clocks in somewhere around like the five-minute-plus mark, which... I don't always love the radio cuts, but I think it was a smart move in, in this case, to
2: and be the,
4: honest. The link doesn't bother me too much, and, but just to loop back to my original comment, there is a song by Sly and the Family Stone called Higher on what, the previous record or two records before? Let me know Not exactly the same song, but it treads in some pretty similar lyrical waters. And separately, Sly Stone apparently wrote for Billy Preston a song called "Advice," which is on a Billy Preston album called "Wildest Organ in Town" or it has a name, something like that, from the '60s. And even though the song is called "Advice," the chorus line is "I want to take you higher." So, it just, it, it's almost like that thing we talked about with the samples on the Missy Elliott episode most recently, that it's like this hook line had been circulating for a while, and they'd tried it many times, and they finally kind of got a hit song out of it here.
1: Yeah, and then they were like, how about we just like vamp one chord and scream, I want to take you higher over it. They're like,
0: that's the formula, there you go. And, and it, could, it could just be like a gospel a thing you'd find in a, you know in a, in a church setting. You know, that he just kind of barred from.
1: Yeah, I could see that, especially with the raucous group vocal going on that does feel very church in the South. Certainly not Catholic Church.
3: No. no. Do they even have music in Catholic Church? Yeah.
1: It's it's a bunch of dads. <laughs> For him, with him, and shine, him. Shine, Jesus, shine. <laughs> no. Too too many notes, out. Too many notes. <laughs>
3: all right let's uh let's move it along to uh the next track which is a a little bit of an unknown deep cut called everyday people
0: about the song. Everyone's heard it a million <laughs> heard it a million times. Yeah. It's 2 minutes long, you know, which is sh- sh- I like think the
4: shortest song on the album.
1: Oh yeah. That stung me the most, the length. I was like in my head this was like a 5 minute song.
4: It's cuz there's not much there, man. It's Yeah. Listen, it's catchy and it's iconic and it's got cowbell, but it's also real real nerdy. <laughs> Tom referenced the goofiness of these lyrics in his tweet. But there's there's a lot of silly lyrics in this one. I I don't know.
3: There's that part that sounds almost like a uh, playground bully. Yeah, it's, kind like, of thing. it's like, like nanny,
4: nanny, nanny, poo-poo. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs> totally. <laughs> this song is great, yeah. though.
3: I think it's like an almost perfect kind of pop song. Like, there's not a lot there, but there's everything that needs to be
4: there. I'll, I'll give it a compliment. I think the thing that sells it for me and makes it a hit is you go from this really understated vocal on the verses to sly coming in at least an octave above with this big clipped rock and roll kind of vocal for the hook line and even though the music under it is really not changing that gives you something that that is an interesting choice
1: what al- what also comes in is my favorite part of the song is that super boss harmony that they hard pan left the really high like ah harmony going on it's really good i don't understand why they didn't just put that dead center in the mix it would have sat so much better but it's it's good and like to be able to hit those notes that confidently and harmonize beautifully like that it's really tough to do that it sounds great i had not noticed that particular part of it before like how much beef that gives to sly's vocal take just those those harmonies booming in the background
4: can we talk about the first place I actually heard this song, which was the Arrested Development cover of Oh, it?
1: yeah. People Every Day. That's
4: Every right.
1: day. <laughs> Every day.
0: I like he starts naming like examples of everyday people. He's like, you know, a butcher, a banker, sure, and a a drummer. It's like, yeah. come on. <laughs> <laughs> there are people, too. Yeah, I guess. I, got, I know. Not the butt of every joke, I guess.
1: Well, he was just talking about a bunch of non-musicians, you know, a butcher, a banker, a drummer. (laughs) Yeah,
3: right. (laughs) Damn. Damn. The drummer was one of the white guys in the band, too, I believe.
1: Didn't the Black Panthers insist that he fire the white guys in the band after they got really famous for, like, solidarity purpose? He, then, they did, and, yeah. And then, and then the record companies were like, "We need you to make music that white people are going to buy." Just like get it from both angles.
3: Like you need to be blacker, you need to be whiter. Like, god damn it, just leave me alone. I'm just going to do PCP over here, peace. So he he didn't actually fire the. I don't know if it was the drummer, but he he like brought in somebody else to sort of like compete. And I think the drummer ended up just quitting because he was kind of fed up with it. So I think it accomplished the same goal. But
1: he sounds like a special guy in his social interactions marty that shit you sent around where he met carol carpenter It was fucking hilarious.
0: Yeah, that was funny. Or the idea of of like Miles Davis kind of just like jocking him and him just being like, yeah, fuck that guy, you know? (laughs) Like, Miles, he's like, leave, quit bugging me. Why are you still at my apartment? (laughs) (laughs) Don't you have anywhere to get, don't you have anywhere to be,
3: Miles? (laughs) Yeah, he had some strange dealings, that's for sure. Well, let's uh, move on to uh, the next song, Uh, not the James Brown version, but the Sly Stone version of a song called Sex Machine.
2: Music
0: I mean, this was actually before the james brown song sex machine which i just learned so
1: at least the title is
0: original but everything else in this sucks yeah i was gonna say like like james brown didn't probably didn't feel too bad like borrowing the title if, if that's what he did
3: <laughs> he's like i can i can improve on this
4: <laughs> right yeah this track is ridiculous and obnoxious it's the one that when i was listening to this relatively passively the first time i had to go like i perked my head up about seven and a half minutes in like what the fuck am i listening to right (laughs) now
3: (laughs) there's just no need for a song like this and i don't know i mean maybe things were just different back then people were more inclined to like let loose on on recordings but honestly it's fine like the musicianship isn't like bad but it's just a completely unnecessary song in fact if i heard this at like glucio's blues jam on a wednesday night i wouldn't even know the
4: difference to be perfectly honest except you'd walk up to the stage and you'd break that fucking talk box so they could never use it again <laughs> oh God, yeah. that's ridiculous. well that's the problem
1: is that and this has happened many times throughout history Where there's something new and something exciting. And you're like, yeah, we're going to feature this in a song. It's new. It's cutting edge. But that's just not cutting edge for that long. And very soon thereafter, it starts to sound really dated. And especially when you devote a song that is more than one quarter of the length of your fucking album to basically a showcase for this one piece of technology. It's not going to age well. And listening to it with modern ears, I was so sick of it like 40 seconds in i was like is this gonna be the whole fucking thing jesus christ i can't do this anymore
4: no no and it's really hard to take and it really does feel like there it's a version of psychological torture that they've calculated because it's a really obnoxious tone and then at three minutes in it stops and you're like oh oh oh, thank christ like they're done playing with that toy (laughs) but no it comes back real quick and then stays in for another 10 minutes yeah,
0: I'm, I'm going to like make another version of this album so that I can actually listen to it in my car at a decent <laughs> volume and take out this song and one other song, which we won't discuss today, but I just... I just don't want to be Blair in that. Yeah, you know. yeah. We, we haven't touched on that and, one, and but in
3: in, in, Portland, well, in Portland, how long know. are you even in a car for more than thirteen minutes? Like, can you even get that's, to your destination that's, that's. before the song's over?
1: Are you going to see any non-white people in your car in Portland? <laughs> <laughs> Better question.
3: <laughs> yeah. Come on, Portland's everyday people. Yeah,
1: we haven't talked about it, but is I actually actually kind of really like that song, song number two on the album, which involves a word that we cannot say look it up for yourself but it's not a bad song and i imagine the time it's
4: very provocative i thought the song sucked really
1: yeah i kind of like it
4: yeah they definitely the two low points for me
1: it's too long it's a six minute song so they really, right. they really go hard at it
4: well and those are essentially
1: the only lyrics <laughs> yep yeah you throw those you throw that and sex machine together that's half the album that is like 20 minutes of a 41-minute album.
3: I really came to dread. So I, I pulled an atom and listened to this between 12 and 15 times over the last week. And every time it came to like I, I dreaded, it affected my enjoyment of the songs before it, knowing that this was about to come up in the
2: playlist. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> Which,
1: by the way, could you have a less apt title for this song? Like <laughs> you see, sex machine, and you're like, yeah, all right. At the very least, this is gonna be fucking music, and you're like, oh, it's just shitty blues with a vote with a talk box. What the fuck is
3: that? It's not. And sexy they all laugh at, at the end. <laughs> That's the only uh, thing that reminds me of sex is the laugh. <laughs> it's
0: usually laughing at the beginning too. Yeah. That's the only redeeming part of the song, actually.
3: You know, I, I will say I did think that that they didn't give a shit and they were just fucking around, but. I don't think you needed to laugh to fill you in on that, honestly. Cool. All right, well let's move on to the final track that we're gonna talk about today, which is you can make it if you try. <laughs>
0: There goes that, that stereo panning again, but I think that in this, this time they, they do it kind of in a cool way where you don't really notice it until about halfway through the song where the, the drums come in on the right ear and then the guitar comes in on the left. It's kind of a cool, cool little trick. There is a version of this song that is my favorite song
1: on the album. I I don't think it exists, but there is a version of the song that could be my favorite song on the album with some different choices, yes.
4: I agree. It was close, dude. I was like, this song is kind of dope, but they run out of ideas in like 90 seconds. Yeah. And then by the time I wrote the, there's a second breakdown at like 2.45, and at that point, I just feel like I'm listening to isolated stem tracks from a box set or something.
1: Uh, Okay. (laughs) Let's talk just for a second about that the mixing issue for that breakdown, okay? You got the hard-panned left backups, all right? And you can physically hear them pulling the slider down on those backups to get <laughs> into that break. There's like a quarter of a second left of them, of them saying that line, and if they just let them finish the line, it would have been great, but they, you could hear it suck out. And then, it, yeah, it goes into this weird, like, ISO sound where it sounds like I'm getting their headphone mix
4: that right, they had in right. the studio.
1: What the, what the fuck is that?
4: Yeah, but, but you're right. The, the initial kind of A to B change is really cool. It's got a cool rhythmic thing. Like, the first 90 seconds of the song are, are really great, and I dug it. Yeah.
3: I like the idea that this album is not, like, a polished or anything close to a polished product. I'm a bit more forgiving with, with some of these other points on, on like polish and just because I think it fits the the kind of chaotic nature of, of the music.
1: Yeah. Larry Graham is sick on this on this track. He plays some really tasteful, nice bass and there's some really sweet licks where he's kind of doubling the guitar later on in the song. It sounds really nice.
4: All
3: right. Now that we've covered a lot of ground here on, on the tracks, it's, it's time to render a, a verdict on whether... You, in fact, need to listen to this album before you die. So let's go around the room and levy a verdict. What say you, Marty? Uh, This is an easy one, an easy easy
0: yes. It's a great album. Uh, It's got great energy. And as I've mentioned on other episodes, and Tom alluded to at the beginning of this one, you know, the beginning of a sound of music, kind of like an event in the 1968 where a band like this releases album and it's kind of like a new sound and a unique sound, always should be on this list. And so again, it's just a great album. It's got
4: great energy, it's positive, and it's just easy to listen to. All right, Rob. Yeah, it's an easy yes for me as well. I didn't I didn't love listening to it, maybe as much as some of you other guys did, but for the reasons described, because it's a the progenator of a major style of music, because it does have great energy, because they take chances, and because it's just ahead of its time. And because Slystone is a little bit unsung, I think, in the canon. In fact, I noticed in my research this week that Questlove is apparently currently working on a documentary about him that maybe will be out later this year or next year. So, yeah, for those reasons, I think it's a must-listen.
1: Yeah, I'm going to give it another must-listen. I actually, I had fun listening to the album. It was a fun album. There's one or two songs that really dragged, but other than that, it's a good album ahead of its time. And... If you want to sound like a total fucking music nerd in a conversation talking about stuff, if you start talking about Sly and the Family Stone and all the shit that they led to, people will be like, what the fuck? You're like, oh yeah, all that 70s funk that you like, they put that shit out in 1969. People are like, damn, okay. You want to sound like a pretentious music asshole, I imagine that's why you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> you should listen to this album. <laughs>
3: so i'll round it out with a clean sweep very easy yes for me i can see putting this on having people over making dinners stuff like that like i think it's got a place in the rotation i mean it's iconic it foreshadowed so much that came after it it's sort of tragic the way that sly's life and career kind of went after this but yeah it's a classic album kind of slam dunk so yeah you're on the list sly well done Let's uh, move on and see what
4: we got in the old uh, mailbag today. Rob, what do you got for us? Thanks, Alan. I got a couple missives here. We love it when you write in. Please write in and tell us more about Sly Stone. Here's one from the mailbag, short one. It says, stumbled on your podcast this past week when combing through the tepid sea of vocal fry and inane podcasts that exist on Spotify. I was pleasingly pleased. Thanks for the insights and the laughs. I'm only somewhat embarrassed to mention that I play tambourine in an Electric Prunes du- Drive Like Jehu Sparks tribute band. And the letter is signed R.B's. Listen, I'm sure that band doesn't exist,
1: but I'd fucking go see that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds great. You got to do Drive Like Jehu songs in the mode of Sparks. <laughs> and then
4: you gotta do, <laughs> and then you just don't do any actual drive like Jehu songs. I like that he signed it RBs. I Ooh. think that's pretty good. He's yeah. he's deep in our lore clearly. Yeah. So congratulations, Steve, for that. A slightly longer one. Listener Bradley writes, "Morning boys. So first, I love the show. You guys are smart, insightful, moronic in perfect proportion. You remind me of myself and my buddies. A couple things. Amazing episodes on Pixies, Smiths, and Gang of Four. I have one real issue with your takes on those bands, but I gotta tell you guys this. I'm a rock and roll lifer, I'm a music nerd, and I'm a bass player, but I have never read or heard those iconic, beloved, canonical records taken down the way you guys did. It was exceptional. Listening to the perspective you guys brought honestly caused me to hear and consider them in ways I never have before. Do I now think the Pixies kind of sucked? No. No. That Andy Gill from Gang of Four was a shit guitar player? No. That Morrissey's pitchiness actually mattered? No, of course not. But fellas, not a single one of those concepts had ever even entered my mind. This guy's, is this guy fucking with us, right? That seems like I he's got to so. fucking with us. <laughs> yeah. I think he's being nice. Okay. It was fantastic to get a fresh different take, even if said take was dead freaking wrong.
3: I think we've all known that bass players have the best taste and the best sort of eye for or ear. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah, I think I think he's just trying to give us some some good context. I'll I'll summarize how he he goes on for a bit, but the gist of it is that he's talking about being alive in that time. And he's like, "Hey, the way the 80s get portrayed in pop culture is is a little bit skewed. From my experience living in the 80s, everything was this really homogenized conformist a boring musical culture. And then, and you only got stuff through the radio or MTV. So that when you actually did get a hold of something like Pixies or Gang of Four, or the Smiths, it was truly sort of mind altering and you were considered quite strange. So. Just just trying to give us that context, but...
1: If you're dying of thirst in the desert, you take whatever water is offered, as they say.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, I swear we get the most mail probably about Gang of Four of any of these episodes. And I have softened to that record, by I the
1: gotta way. tell you, I have re-listened to that record a couple of times. I actually gotta fucking dig it. Some of that stuff gets stuck in my <laughs> head.
4: <laughs> right. I know we made fun of it, but I do like it a fair amount. Anyway, he closes by saying, love you guys. You're doing a fantastic job and making my shitty commute less shitty. Carry on. Well, excellent. Yeah, those were great letters. Thank you so much. If you want to get your letter read on the air, well, first you have to send it over to one thousand and one album complaints at Gmail. Let us know what we got right, what we got wrong, the context we might be missing. We love everything you guys send over, and we learn from it. So please, please, please send us some more emails.
1: Oh, it also helps if you. Take a stance where you agree with rob and disagree with me because rob chooses which ones he reads on the air and so i noticed that they all tend Good to plan. be laudatory towards
4: rob's point of view but you know in other words be correct
1: yes 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 that that's <laughs> definitely another way to, to phrase that yes
4: <laughs> awesome well
3: let's figure out what we're going to listen to this week in anticipation of next week's episode let's let's give the old albinator a spin here Alrighty.
1: Thank you, Alan. I have the Albinator. It has been smoking PCP and doing cocaine in the background. And so it is ready to go and pump out a brand new album for us. Without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to this should be interesting. The album is beauty and the beat and the band is go Go's. Is that to have we got the beat on it?
0: Uh, probably who cares
1: they didn't have that many <laughs> albums did
0: they
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i like that album title yeah 80s pop yeah i haven't heard it but i'm excited to get into it i
3: can be down for this one hell yeah well looking forward to to diving into that one this week with that i have been alan uh, i've been tom i've
4: been marty and i'm rob
3: boosh you're not gonna give a boosh
1: shakalaka
4: Come on, it's right there. It's right there.